Well, this morning, as I've already mentioned, we're going to be looking at something that's very, very special and very, very sacred in the life of the local church. Unfortunately, however, we often bring to this sacred special time in the life of, a, of the local church, we often bring various misunderstandings, uh, various misconceptions, various wrong attitudes when we come to the Lord's Supper. I want to give you a few examples. Many times we come with an attitude or a misconception of sort of a ritualistic mentality. An attitude of ritual. Now this attitude will say something to the effect of, I've participated in this for so many years as a Christian, I, but yet I don't really understand why I'm doing it. Or maybe you think you have a pretty good understanding of the Lord's Supper and, and all that it means, all that it represents, but it just becomes something that you do. That is the attitude of ritual. I would say that a huge amount of Christians throughout churches in America and in this world, this is a temptation to not really give the Lord's Supper much thought. A second attitude that is very prevalent is one of penance. We're all, you're all familiar maybe with penance, the, the, the Catholic teaching that you can somehow atone for your sins. Now many know that, that we could never atone for our sins, but yet we still bring this idea of penance into the Lord's Supper. In other words, the attitude, I take part in the Lord's Supper to maybe cleanse my conscience somehow or to gain favor with God. That is not why we partake of the Lord's Supper. In fact, as we'll see, we partake because of the very opposite that we already have God's favor, that our conscience has already been cleansed through the shed blood of Jesus. Not to get that cleansing. But whatever form that may take in your mind, ask yourself, is my partaking of communion a sort of pen penance to clear my conscience? Third attitude many individuals come to communion with, communion, by the way, and Lord's Supper are, are different ways of describing the same term, uh, so don't get confused about that, is performance. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, how in the world do, does someone partake of of the elements in the Lord's Supper in a performance sort of way. Well, it can many times take on the attitude of this. I take part in the Lord's Supper or don't take part of the Lord's Supper based upon my estimation of my own worthiness. Let me repeat that because I think this hits home for many. I take part in the Lord's Supper or don't take part of the Lord's Supper based upon my estimation of my own worthiness. 
Now, we're going to see a little bit later today that Paul says that we need to examine ourselves. But yet, what I'm talking about right now is that we become the checks and balances of our own lives as to whether we should or should not partake of communion as a child of God in the local church. I remember struggling with this deeply uh, growing up. In fact, anyone that, that, um, that has in, uh, I hate to use the word overactive conscience because so many times that um, that's taken the wrong way. We need to have an active conscience. But I remember as a young boy being petrified of whether I was taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. Uh, Martin Luther, when you read accounts of his life uh, before his salvation, as he would give the Mass, he would, uh, it was a disaster when he first gave it because um, thoughts flooded his mind, sin flooded his mind. He thought, how can I give out and, par- and lead this mass. And that was a great avenue to lead him to Christ. But I remember as a child just fretting and, and talking in the, our family van with my mother before the evening service when we were going to have communion, just telling her all of these things I felt guilty of um, and saying, I don't know if I'm worthy to take communion and my mom trying to talk, to, trying to talk um, the gospel into my life. Um, that, but what I was doing is I was basing everything through this performance model. And it was taking away the very specialness and uniqueness of the Lord's Supper. The fourth attitude we can often have is that of simple ignorance. This attitude says something to the effect of, I really don't understand what I am doing or why I'm doing it. Therefore, in reality, in all practical terms, it's meaningless to me. Maybe today there's an ignorance about the significance of of the Lord's Supper, the, the weightiness of the Lord's Supper. And, and maybe you have some ideas. Yes, I know the, 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 the juice symbolizes his blood and, and, and the bread symbolizes his body. But man, there's a whole lot more to the Lord's Supper than that. And maybe there's some ignorance that needs to be addressed in your understanding. And what I hope will happen today is that through our study in God's Word, you will begin to gain a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation, and a deeper sense of need when it comes to taking part in the Lord's Supper. Because listen, when you know the significance of the Lord's Supper, man, your heart yearns to take part. And when when time goes by and you haven't been able to to take part of the Lord's Supper, man, there's something within your spiritual heart that hungers for it. When was the last time you've had that hunger, that spiritual desire? Today we're going to look at three key points of understanding, three key points of understanding that we as Christians should have regarding 
the Lord's Supper. And as you know, I like to kind of summarize things into one sentence that that you can walk away with, uh, even if you don't um, remember everything. This is the sentence. This is the key sentence of the morning, okay? As a local church, we must be anchored in our understanding and practice of the Lord's Supper. Let's say that together. As a local church, we must be anchored in our understanding and practice of the Lord's Supper. This is not a, a, a you know, this is good to know, or, or here's, here's at the end of, the, of a book, an appendix, you know. You can read it, and you don't have to read it, just some extra information. No, this is crucial to the life of the believer, and this is crucial to the life and health of the local church. So with that in mind, let's pray, ask God's blessing, ask God's help in our study of the Scriptures as we seek to learn more about the Lord's Supper and its implications to our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would teach us this morning, Lord. Father, just show us from your word the glorious truths that you have. Lord, show us and enlighten our understanding to the glorious truths of the Lord's Supper. Lord, it's not just something that we do ritualistically. It's not something we do out of penance or out of performance. And Lord, may it not be something we do out of ignorance. But Lord, may we, as your people, search the scriptures diligently, as Acts says, to see the truths of your word. Lord, we pray that as we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper later this morning, Father, that you would lift our hearts, that you would strengthen us as we hold the bread and the juice and all that it means. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you these three key points of understanding this morning, and this is going to be a broad Um, This really could be a couple-week series. We're going to do this all in one, so there could be more to be said regarding this, uh, but we're going to have to settle right now for what we have time for. And this is what we're going to see, number one. In understanding the Lord's Supper, we have to see that the Lord's Supper is an identity marker for God's people. The Lord's Supper is an identity marker for God's people. You may say, what do you mean by that, an identity marker? Well, first of all, we have to understand that the Lord's Supper identifies who we are. It identifies who we are. Just like I have a birth certificate, that birth certificate signifies who I am. I am a Pereira. The Lord's Supper signifies who we are. Now we're going to look at Luke chapter 22. Now please take note that as we read, this is the Passover. And we're going to talk about the Passover in a few minutes. This is the Passover that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating. Now this is not the Lord's Supper. What Jesus is doing is he is instituting at this Passover the Lord's Supper. He is is transforming the Passover and what it meant to greater significance that we as the church now celebrate. But let's read 
this last Passover that Jesus partakes of in verse 14 of Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then it says they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. We see that the Lord's Supper identifies who we are. Notice in verse 19, it says, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave to them, saying, This is My body which is given for who? For you. Notice verse 20, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for who? For you is the new covenant in My blood. So this identifies who are new covenant members. Those who Jesus has given his life, his body for, and his blood. That is why communion, the Lord's Supper, is only for believers. Those who have been purchased by him. Those who are new covenant members of the family of faith. So in other words, this can be summarized as what you see above you. By eating the bread and drinking the juice, we display our union with Christ and the redemption that he provides. So we are putting this on display for one another, for those in our midst, that we have been redeemed, we have been uh, washed through his blood, And it's also symbolizing, therefore, our union that we have with Jesus. Now, if your finger is in John chapter 6, if you would turn to that passage. Again, page 892, if you are following along um, in a pew Bible. Now, here is a very hard passage And Jesus is telling the uh, people, the Jewish people, this, this teaching after he says, I am the bread of life. This is after Jesus fed the 5,000. The people follow him because certainly anyone that could give that much food, he must be the, the promised Messiah. He must be coming to overthrow Rome. And Jesus gives them a deeper truth regarding that, feet, that those 5,000 that were fed. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And now here's where Jesus seems to get real confusing. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the, fl- of the world is my flesh. Now we, um, if, as believers, if you're a believer here, you can understand that. Jesus is what that bread in the Old Testament pictured. Except Jesus is a greater bread. The bread in the Old Testament in the wilderness, that only satisfied temporary hunger. Jesus comes to give his life that fully satisfies. It never ends. It gives eternal life. But then he adds, he says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. That sounds confusing, doesn't it? In fact, uh, many uh, individuals in the Catholic faith would give that passage of Scripture to say, well, the, the, the bread does really become the body of Christ. The blood does really, or the drink does really become the, the blood of Christ from this passage. But we have to see here that what Jesus is portraying is that in order to have eternal life, you must feast upon me, upon what I have done for you, upon my body which I give, my blood which I pour out. You must come to me by faith. Now the elements of the bread and the juice that we partake of in the Lord's Supper. It is a picture of the union that we have with Christ. Now, when you eat that bread or or drink that juice, is there a distinguishing when it enters your body that you can now distinguish that juice from your body, that you can distinguish that bread from your body? No. It's a picture of the union that we have with Christ. I like what one individual said. To eat of this bread, meaning what Jesus is referring to when he says eating of my body, it means to appropriate or to accept Christ as one's life. It is a figure of belief. For no one will eat what he cannot trust to be edible. To eat a meal implies that it is wholesome, nourishing, and real. This verse introduces what Jesus is doing here is not trying to give a dialogue on what the Lord's Supper means in John 6. The Lord's Supper has never even been instituted yet. What Jesus is seeking to do in John 6 is introduce the concept of Jesus' vicarious or substitutionary death. The sacrifice of his body for the sins of the world. And then when we get to Luke chapter 22, you can go back to that passage as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and says this 
juice, this wine, this is my blood. This bread, this is my body. Is, he is saying now that these elements that you have taken in the Passover to remember the exodus from Egypt now takes on greater significance. The exodus from the exile of your sin. Now this is a picture of my body, of my blood. So by eating the bread and drinking the juice, we display our union with Christ and the redemption that he has provided for us as his people. But there's a second identity marker as we as God's people partake of communion. Not only does it identify who we are, but secondly, it assures us that we are his. It assures us that we are his. You see, what communion is, one of the things that communion or the Lord's Supper is, it is a visible picture of that which is spiritual. Let me give you two illustrations regarding this. We've just had um, a new president. We've just had the inauguration, a new president installed. And we think of the American flag. The American flag does not produce freedom for people, does it? I mean, I can, I can take that American flag and put it in a suitcase and I can go to North Korea and I can go to, not to be, uh, not to, not to be um, you know, uh, disrespectful of the flag, but I can use that flag for a bed sheet when I'm in North Korea, it doesn't really do a lot for me, does it? The American flag itself does not produce freedom, but it is, it is a sign or it represents the freedom that has been purchased. You see, as we see the flag and as we say the pledge, we are reminded and assured of the reality of our freedom, which that flag represents. You see, America, uh, heaven forbid, could one day be overcome by some foreign nation and we lose our freedom, but you could still hang an American flag on your wall, right? Or hang it outside your house. It wouldn't mean anything, but you could. Because that flag in and of itself doesn't produce the freedom, but it is a picture of a greater reality which we enjoy that has been bought for us through the sacrifice of countless American citizens. Now the Lord's Supper, as we hold the bread and the juice in our hands, as we take it into our bodies, we are presented with a physical representation of the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality that while the elements, the bread and the juice, do not cleanse us from sin, they do not earn us favor with God, they show us a picture and they represent for us the freedom and that union that we have. Does that make sense? Let me give you one more illustration. How about if you're married, your wedding ring. The ring that we wear 
signifies and pictures the marriage that we have with our spouse. It's an identifier, isn't it, that we are married. That we're taken, we're spoken for. Could someone who is not married wear a wedding ring? Would that make them married? The power and importance of the wedding ring, it is not the ring itself, but what it represents and points to. It is not that the ring is our marriage, but it identifies us in our marriage. Folks, the identity marker that assures us that we are Christ is the Lord's Supper. You see, I can be in a huge fight with my wife. Or I can be so mad, there can be, there can be a rift in, in the marriage with my wife. Yet as I look, I am reminded of my responsibilities of my vows, of my commitment to faithfulness to my spouse. It is not that, that, I, that uh, if I ha- did not have that ring, I would not be married, but it is a matter of representation. It is a visible picture of reality. Folks, many times, Individuals that are struggling with their salvation. Man, I'm, I'm worried that, that I'm, I'm not saved. What do I do? You know what one of the best pieces of advice after giving spiritual exhortation from God's word that shows us of our assurance of salvation, it is you know what you need to do? You need to take time in the local church and you need to be a part of the Lord's Supper. Not that you're somehow granted assurance because the elements have have done some sort of cleansing, but because what you have as you hold that bread is a reminder that what Jesus did for us is as real as this bread that I'm holding in my hand. The, The blood that washed away my sins is as real as this juice that I can look upon and drink. It assures us that we are His. Our spirits should long to be in consistent communion with our Lord at communion. But then thirdly, there's a third uh, aspect of this identity marker. It identifies who we are. It, It assures us that we are His. And then thirdly, it points us backwards and forwards. Backwards and forwards. We see this in the Passover in the Old Testament. The Passover was instituted for the people of Israel at the Exodus when God would deliver the people from Egypt. And He tells them, take a lamb and and if, if anyone's house is too small, they can go to a neighbor's house. You take the lamb, you kill the lamb, you put the blood on the doorposts and Um, The angel will pass over your house. Your oldest son will be spared. You see, the Passover, as the people of Israel throughout the ages partook of the Passover, it, or that night when they partook of the first Passover, it pointed them forward 
to God's deliverance in Egypt, that God would deliver his people out of bondage. And as God said, you are to partake of this Passover uh, yearly, you are to continue in this. As they took it, it also pointed them backwards to God's deliverance that he had provided in Egypt. And the scriptures show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Passover. You remember what John said in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is not referred to as a lamb out of accident. He is what that Passover lamb would point to. He is the lamb that would provide uh, redemption, not from the death angel of of the firstborn, but from spiritual death. He would provide, provide exodus, not from physical bondage, but from spiritual bondage. He is the deliverer and restorer of his people, Isaiah 52 and 53 tell us. And now as we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover, as we look to the New Testament and we see the Lord's Supper, we see again that it points us both backwards and forwards. It points us backwards to the redemption that he has already provided for his people. We already looked at Luke 22, 19 to 20. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in what? In what of me? Remembrance, pointing backwards. In verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So it points us as we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper together as a local church, our minds reflect backwards upon what Jesus has done. And then our minds also go forward to the redemption that is yet to be completed. You see, in Luke 22, in verse 16, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18 says, I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Folks, redemption is not finished yet. There is more that is coming. There is the already and the not yet of salvation. I mean, God has started a a redeeming work in us, but, but it's not finished in us. Until the day God calls us home or or Jesus returns. So it points us forward that we are awaiting the return of Christ. We are awaiting for that exclamation point to be put at the end of that sentence. Does that make sense? So you see that the Lord's Supper is an identity marker for God's people. But there's a second aspect of the Lord's Supper that I want to share with you. The Lord's Supper is an act of fellowship. We must, as Christians, have an understanding that the Lord's Supper is an act of fellowship. It is an identity marker 
that we partake of it because we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And as we partake, it gives us assurance that just as sure as we see and taste those elements, that that is as sure of our redemption, that it is a reality. And it gives us a new perspective as we look backwards, we look forward. But then the second understanding we're to have is, man, the Lord's Supper is an act of fellowship. I would like you to turn to 1 Corinthians. This will be, 1 Corinthians will be the last book you need to turn to. Chapter 10, page 957. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with food that is offered to idols and some of the disagreement that was in the local church. Should we eat food offered to idols? Should we not? Paul continues in chapter 9 talking about uh, the, the grace of Christ that, that we, we are free yet we, we don't want to cause an offense talks about the danger of idolatry. He talks about desiring to, to run in such a way that he wins the prize. We look at chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 14. Notice it says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup of blessing that is being referred to is the cup which is given in the Lord's Supper, the cup of which we drink, remembering the blood which was shed for us. The bread that we break is, is the bread that we partake of at the Lord's Supper, remembering the body that was given for us. So we have to see the Lord's Supper is an act of fellowship. First and foremost, it's an act of communion with Christ. Not only is it an, it, 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 an identity marker of, who, of whose we are, but now we have a new facet in the Lord's Supper that it is an act of actual communion with Jesus. We see from, from verse six, uh, 16, the cup of blessing and our participation in it. That word participation is the word koinonia. It's the word which we get uh, fellowship from the word that describes the fellowship that we have with one another as the body of Christ. A fellowship. And here Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? You may say, what does that mean in our, our participation in the blood of Christ? Again, you have the, the imagery of union there. That folks, as we uh, drink of the cup and eat the bread, we are fellowshipping with our Savior who has purchased us. It is not just something we take lightly or flippantly. Would we dare meet 
with our Savior and just take that as a ho-hum experience? We are fellowshipping. We are communing with our Savior because of the union that He has given us through His death on our behalf. We see also at the end of verse 16 the bread and our participation in it. The bread that we break, he says, is it not a participation, a koinonia, a fellowship in the body of Christ? Folks, as we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, we see the union, the fellowship that not only is displayed as we take in those elements, but the fellowship that we have, the communion we have with our Savior through this observance He's given the local church. And as we do this, as we take of the, uh, of the, of the juice, as we take of the bread, we declare in our fellowship with Christ, in our union with Christ, what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says. It says this, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. The blessings, the promises that Jesus' death on our behalf has offered to us Folks, in a sense, we claim those as we partake of the Lord's table. That we are indeed His and He is ours. It's an act of communion with Christ, but it is also an act of communion, however, with one another. That is why God ha- or Jesus has given the church the command to partake of the Lord's Supper till he returns because as we commune with Christ, we are communing with one another because the the death of Jesus has brought us union with Jesus, but it also has brought us union with one another as his family. That is why, as we're going to get to, Paul says, how can there be divisions among you and yet you're partaking of the Lord's Supper together? You're, You're mocking the very thing that it stands for. That Jesus has brought us together in perfect unity. You see, this is an act of communion with one another as the body of Christ. You see, we are remembering, we are fellowshipping with Jesus as we remember his body that was given to us. But, and, and here we are partaking of communion together as the body of Christ the functional body of Christ in this world. Now, if you just flip over a page and turn to 1 Corinthians 11, this is where we are going to be stopping. I didn't say stopping the message. I just meant stop your turning. (laughs) Notice the context in which the Lord's Supper takes place in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, before, uh, just, just so you understand, 
that at the beginning part, uh, Paul is speaking to a sort of a feast that believers in the first century would have before they would partake of the Lord's Supper. We'll get into that. But notice in verse 17, it says, um, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So there's a problem going on. He says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Uh Uh-oh. But notice, first of all, it says, when you come together. That's referring to a group of people, is it not? Um, It goes on, it says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Notice again, when you come together. Now, to get, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but when he says it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, there, there's a sense of irony there when he's saying, man, the way you guys are acting, you certainly can't be expecting to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. There's divisions, and there's all sorts of mess going on, and we're going to read about it. But notice right now, twice he's already said, when you come together. Let's keep reading. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Imagine that church potluck. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, helping, we're, 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 we're helping one guy um, stagger to his table and we're trying to find food for the other guy. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Again, this paragraph is referring to what was called a love feast. Supposed to be Christian love as a body. They would eat a meal together, fellowship together, and then partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, they're causing a mockery before they even get to the Lord's Supper. Now notice in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Now that word you, in English, we can say you to one person or to many people. Not so in the original languages. This is a plural, you. In other words, this is my body, which is for, if you're like me, you're a southerner, you'd say, this is my body, which is for y'all. It's for y'all. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the, the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, he's saying to all of them, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All of these verbs that were used were in the plural. In other words, the context for observing the Lord's Supper is in the church. It's not in your home. It's not uh, something to do individually. It is a corporate church observance. And one of those reasons is because of the unity that is portrayed through the Lord's Supper, that it is not an individualistic thing. It is our union with Christ, and it is our union with one another. Now, what's the implications? 
First of all, as we share in the blessings of Christ's body and blood, in other words, his death for us, we share together as the local body of Christ. Secondly, as we fellowship together, we proclaim and remind one another of Christ's death and soon return. You see, we need that exhortation to one another. Remember, church. Remember, brother. Remember, sister. Christ is coming back. Jesus is returning. Remember what he's done for us. You know, we're, we're going through that trial. And there's maybe a select few brothers and sisters of Christ in this body that know the trial you're going through. You know what the Lord's Supper is an opportunity? Maybe not during, but after or before. It's to say, hey, I'm praying for you. Remember the hope that we have. Remember our identity. We were reminded our identity is tied to Jesus, not these things that are surrounding us. Man, we got bigger things to live for than than the cares and concerns of this world. Let's remind one another. You see, we remind one another of Christ's death and soon return, and we see then the Lord's Supper then is both an act of unity in the body and a building up of the body. And that's exactly what Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 tells us to do. Exhort one another, build one another up, The Lord's Supper is one of the main ways to build the body. Let us not mock it by being a divisive person in the church. Let us not mock it by holding grudges against fellow brothers and sisters in this church. You see, the Lord's Supper is not only an identity marker. The Lord's Supper is an act of fellowship. And then thirdly, the Lord's Supper is an act of worship. If you got our church, if you get our church emails, if you don't, you can sign up at the kiosk. But in the email that I sent out to you, there is a mention of the Lord's Supper. Were you able to not talking about long hours or things, but were you, were you able to find time to quiet your hearts and prepare yourself for partaking of the Lord's Supper? Do you prepare your hearts to, uh, to meet together every Sunday with the body of Christ to worship your Savior and Redeemer? Or man, are you living such a rat race that, that, that you know, Sunday morning is just like any other morning? And maybe we wonder why that communion with Christ seems to be missing. It seems to, to, that you don't seem to get anything out of the assembly of God's people. You see, the Lord's Supper, like, just like the church service, is an act of worship. So we may ask ourselves, what should our attitude in communion be? What should our attitude in the Lord's Supper be? Because this is where it gets real practical. Another way of putting this is, should our attitude in communion be one of fear or faith? 
We already saw in 1 Corinthians 11 the mockery that, these, that this Corinthian church was causing during this, this, pre, this feast before the Lord's Supper. Look also, as we, we go to the next pa- uh, to verse 27, we see that the Lord's Supper is a very serious thing. Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we But uh, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So we see here that Paul is warning this church that if they continue continue this this flippant, carnal uh, actions, not truly discerning the importance and and what they're doing at the Lord's Supper, that there's already individuals that God has been disciplining because of this, and he will continue if it does not stop. So then that leaves us with the question, what is our attitude to be in communion? Some people take verses 27 to 34, and they have a response of just flat-out fear. Boy, I better not partake of communion because I don't want to chance it that I'm going to get sick. Are we to be having a spirit of fear or faith? And I would say yes. <laughs> Did you get that? Fear, like we talked about last week, not in the sense of our knees are buckling and we think that God is waiting to throw down the hammer on us. No. A godly fear that produces reverence and awe. A fear that spurs us on to desire to partake of the table. You see, when we have the proper attitude in communion, we, three things are going to happen. We will come to the Lord's Supper realizing our desperate need for Christ. Folks, when truth be told, I never come to the Lord's Supper worthily. Because I, no matter how far I, I, I pry, I see failures and faults. I'm never going to come based upon my own righteousness, in other words. In fact, the very... Uh, the reason we celebrate the Lord's table is because we celebrate a righteousness that is not our own. So in that sense, a true spirit of worship when we come to communion is to realize our desperate need of Christ that produces a thankfulness for what he has provided to us. But secondly, our attitude in communion should then be that we will come to the Lord's Supper examining ourselves not for perfection, but for striving. In other words, as I do, as Paul says, examine myself, do I see that I haven't been living in earnest expectation of Jesus' soon return? 
Have I somehow forgotten my identity? And as I forget my identity, man, I've made some divisions in the church. Maybe I've, I've offended some people because, man, I'm, I, I am not shielding and vetting things through my identity in Christ. I'm letting myself blow up. I'm doing whatever it may be because my identity is all about me. And I need to repent of that and I need to use this time to remind myself of whose I truly am. And in that repentance, partake of the elements in fellowship with Christ and with one another. And then thirdly, our attitude in communion is that we come to the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need in visible form a picture, a reminder of the gospel. His body that was given for me, his blood that was shed for me. You see, the Lord's Supper is an act of worship. Our attitude in communion is to be a reverential awe in faith. Our focus in communion, you may say, is it to be self or Christ? And again, while the answer is yes, we see that as we do examine ourselves, our introspection or our examination should ultimately, ultimately lead us to Christ, not to ourselves. So it's not an idea of, oh, this time I'm going to do better till the next time I have communion. Or, okay, I think I got things right enough that yeah, now I can take this. You know, th that is viewing it through self. It is God. Again, in my brokenness and in my sin, I'm reminded of my need for you and my need to cling to you and to ask you to do a work in me. You see, Christ is to have the focus as we come to the Lord's table. And you see, the Lord's Supper, thirdly, is an act of worship because through the Lord's table, we are renewed. We are renewed. We are renewed spiritually, not in the sense that we have sins forgiven or that somehow we've earned favor with God. We are renewed because we walk away with the assurance that we are His and He is ours. We have fellowshiped with our Lord through the elements. We have fellowshiped with one another as the body of Christ. And we desire to walk in the sustaining grace that he provides. Not saving grace, but sustaining grace. So as we conclude, let's say this together, this one sentence. As a local church, we must be anchored in our understanding and practice of the Lord's Supper. There is more that could be said, but I know that our time has already been well spent, and I want to have us as a body of Christ to start to look at communion through these foundational concepts.